Om Asatoma Sangamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Rityama Amritangamaya Ave Ave Maadhi Rudrayate Dakshina Mukham Tenamam Pahinityam Om Shanti 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 Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through, O Lord, and protect us evermore with your loving presence. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. The title of today's talk is Hooray for Everything. And I thought that was kind of a funny title. And as the days have gone by, I think maybe the joke was on me. Um, a little backstory here. Uh, some of you probably know that there are dogs in the desert ashram where I live. They were being very naughty recently and um, digging under the fence almost every single day. And so I was trying desperately to keep them on the part. They're going out and terrorizing the neighborhood and doing all kinds of things, staying out at all hours, being naughty dogs. So I'm trying to keep them in, and I'm taking them for more walks, and I'm running with them and all this. I overdo it, and I injure my knee. Okay, so then now I can't walk very well, and I'm running. is out of the question. And then a few days after this happens, one of the dogs gets sick, and I take him to the vet. And it turns out that he's got an abdomen full of tumors and pus, and they have to kill him. So they put the dog down. So that takes us up to Thursday before last. Then I went to Hollywood last Sunday and gave a talk, which I thought went pretty well, but I'm not sure how well it went over. Sometimes I, I get really excited about what I'm talking about, and I look up and I see a bunch of glazed faces. But anyway, I liked the talk. Maybe I got a little too excited, and um, after it was over, I had a, a sore throat and, and some kind of acidic mucus, and the next day I had a full-blown sinus infection, not COVID, but a sinus infection. And so it's Monday, last. I've got a bum knee, a dead dog, and a sinus infection, and it's time to write about hooray for everything, right? This is what... <laughs> I've signed up for, for the following Sunday. This is my subject. So this, to me, is an example of God's sense of humor. And God, I think, is funny. But the problem with God's sense of humor, I was just talking about this with Krishna Prana Mataji before I came down here, is that I am frequently the butt of the joke. We are frequently the butt of the joke when God's going to be funny. And uh, <clears throat> so... Nevertheless, it's a timely lesson, I think, because um, 
This is one of the big challenges to hooray for everything. Life keeps raining on my parade and I'm going to try and maintain a hooray for everything attitude. So I have to admit that although I wasn't too keen on the situation I found myself in on Monday, it was apropos of the talk. Okay, so you think you're going to talk about hooray for everything in Santa Barbara on Sunday. Here you go. Here's, here's something to think about. And uh, <clears throat> this situation where I find myself in some things have gone south somehow, what generally happens is my mind starts to offer a bunch of explanations that are not particularly helpful for how I got into this position. If you hadn't run with the dogs, or if you took the dog to another vet, or, or maybe it's just because uh, you're a bad person and this is your karma, or God's teaching you a lesson, or all these explanations for my situation come to my mind. And this is are my own personal narrator who narrates my life story. We all have one of these in our heads. Things happen and we have this voice in our heads that tries to connect the dots for us. And it makes up all these stories and deliberates about these things. It talks about how we got here and what might happen next. This actually, according to some psychologists very recently, not very recently, a few years back, they came up with an explanation suggesting that we actually spend almost half of our time thinking about something other than what we're doing. Trying to explain something or anticipate something or the mind is just somewhere else. We're in the car, but we're not in the car. We're sitting at a computer trying to write a talk, except I'm explaining how the dog died. We're, we're here and we're not here. Uh, roughly half of the time, they say, 47%. How they get a number that specific, I'm not sure. But anyway, roughly half the time, we're doing something, we're thinking about something other than what we're doing. And they also find that the more time we spend thinking about something other than what we're doing, the less happy we are. Now, to me, that's very believable. I don't know about the 40%, 47%, but that part's very believable. The more time we spend with the mind wandering off, off topic, the less happy we are. Why? Because this personal narrator that we have that connects the dots of our lives and comes up with some story frequently doesn't come up with a very happy story. The stories that were offered for why our dog died and how we could have avoided it generally aren't happy stories. And so naturally, it seems to me, the more time we daydream and, and, and entertain our anxieties about this stuff, yes, it makes sense that we're not going to be super happy about this. And what is our narrator doing? It's offering us cause and effect, right? If you hadn't made that left turn, this other car wouldn't hit you, and then you would still have your license, or if, or if you went to a different doctor, the diagnosis would have been different, avoiding surgery, all these things we come up with. And we can just do this forever and ever. We can come up with a different way to connect the dots and, and none of it ever brings us peace. There is no final connection of the dots that satisfies us. And in fact, Swami Vivekananda tells us that connecting the dots is a complete waste of time because ultimately he says, 
There is no cause and effect. He says this is just a creation of our minds. Cause and effect is something that we create in our minds. He says this universe, this dream of life, he calls it, has no rhyme or reason. Our efforts to identify cause and effect in this world are just that, creations of our mind. I'll read his words. He says, There is no such thing as law or connection in this world, although we think there is. The world is an unconnected thing just like Alice in Wonderland. He liked the book. He read the book and he liked the book. (laughs) When we see things happen a number of times in a certain sequence, we call it cause and effect. And we say that that thing will happen again. So yes, it's all Alice in Wonderland here according to Swami Vivekananda. And even actually from a scientific standpoint, if you look closely enough at this world, you find that cause and effect just kind of evaporates. If you watch a baseball game and you see somebody hits a home run, yes, they hit the ball with the bat. You try and look at it in very fine detail. Chaos theory, quantum mechanics tells you, forget it. You will never know exactly how this happened. Cause and effect ultimately, if you look closely enough, eludes you. He goes on, he says, when we wake from the dream of this world and compare it with reality, capital R, it will be found all a bunch of incongruous nonsense, a mass of incongruity passing before us. We do not know from where it comes or where it goes. So that is ultimately the Vedantic idea of this place. We say it's karma. We say it's the will of God. We try and make the, tell ourselves some story about how whatever it was happened, happened. Ultimately, it's a dream. Not just this world, but all the other worlds, the heavens and the hells that the soul supposedly goes to afterwards. Like this, just as real and just as nonsensical. And we do the same thing. How did I get here and where am I going next? We make up these little stories in our minds. And yet the problem with this is, even if we know, even if we believe that, assuming that you believe what I just said, if we believe that, the mind has this compulsive tendency to continually offer us alternatives. Well, how about this one? And how about that one? And maybe you could have done this, or you could have done that, or maybe this will happen next, and it won't stop. And yet none of these things really lets us take a deep breath, never really gives us a break. And so it'd be nice to be able to feed the mind an alternative, something to shut it up, give us a little peace. I learned a lesson in this uh, from Swami Swahananda many years ago. He was uh, the head of this Vedanta Society of Southern California until his death in 2012. So this was about 15 years ago. I was going to take brahmachari vows. It's the first vows the monastics take. And uh, there's another guy who's going to take it with me. <clears throat> and this was kind of a big, big deal. One of the nuns also in Hollywood, she was going to take her final vows, sannyasa vows. And so we had swamis coming in from all over the country to flying in for this solemn ceremony. Well, a devotee, a nun, ex-nun, she was actually a nun here in Santa Barbara for several years. She got wind of this long in advance, and she was proud of us. She'd known us for a while, and she thought this was a nice development, and she wanted to do something nice for us. 
So she bought us tickets to a baseball game. Now, that doesn't sound like a particularly spiritual way to celebrate this solemn monastic ceremony, but it sounded like fun, and I wanted to do it. I hadn't been to a baseball game in a long time. It was a Dodger game. The other guy, he also wanted to go to the Dodger game. So we've got this Dodger game. That's cool. We'll go to the Dodger game, and then we'll have this ceremony, and everything will be fine. Well, God's sense of humor is going to strike again, because this was all done far in advance, and yet it just so happened that the weekend of the baseball game that she happened to buy the tickets for and the weekend of this solemn ceremony that all the swamis are flying in for are the same weekend. Okay, well, that's actually not so bad because I didn't really feel bad about going to a baseball game, but I didn't really want to trumpet it either. I didn't want to announce to the whole country of swamis that at this solemn time, this ceremony, I'm choosing to duck out for a baseball game. I'd prefer if we just kept that quiet. Uh, and yet, clearly, the universe said, well, if you're going to go to this baseball game, every Swami in the country is going to know about it. <laughs> so that wasn't my first choice. And yet, at the same time, I didn't exactly feel guilty about it. I just thought, geez, do I really have to announce this to all these people? And so we talked to the other brahmachari, and I talked it over. And um, he basically said, forget this. If we're going to this game, you're doing it. You're going to talk to Swami. I'm not talking to Swami. It was his guru. I can understand that. If, Swami, if it was my guru and I had to face him, I don't know what I would have done. But it wasn't. So it was my job to face Swami and ask him permission to go to a baseball game in the middle of this solemn weekend. And... You know, I, I didn't have much hope for this. Swami Swahananda, he was, I think, 86 or 87 at the time. Um, I'm sure he'd never been to a baseball game in his life. And I thought, you know, what brahmachari in India would dare to go to President Maharaj the weekend of their brahmachari vows and ask to go to a cricket match? It wouldn't happen. And so all these thoughts are in my mind, and I'm thinking, you know, how about from his standpoint? His, I mean, he was senior to everyone, but still, it was his peer group. The other heads of center around the country are going to come in here. Here are the two promising young candidates that I have nominated for these solemn vows, and what are they doing this weekend? How's that going to look, right, to his peer group? What's he going to say, you know, how does this affect him? And... So I'm thinking if he said something like, well, maybe I picked the wrong guys, or maybe you guys just aren't quite ready for this yet, that would have seemed reasonable to me for him to do that. But he didn't. And his answer was wonderful. And it's been something that I've been repeating in my head from time to time for years since. I went through the whole thing. I stammered through. I said, Swami, so-and-so bought these tickets. It was months ago. She didn't know it was this weekend, and now it's this weekend, and we want to go to this thing, and whatever I said, it was pathetic. And I just did the best I could, and I waited to see what was going to happen. And um, he, he took it all in, and there was a pause, and he said, yes, go. It is all part of the purification process. 
That's what he said. It is all part of the purification process. And I thought, wow, that is so cool. It is all part of the purification process. Why is that so cool? Because it's the answer to everything. Did you get the big promotion at work? Great. It's all part of the purification process. Did you not get the big promotion at work? Great. It's all part of the purification process. Everything that we're doing here as devotees, trying to advance our spiritual lives, trying to grow spiritually, all of this is part of the purification process. All this connecting of the dots, forget it. Throw that all out the window. The dog died because this is part of the purification process. Your knee is out because this is part of the purification. All that, all of it, everything, everything we do, everything we experience. <clears throat> and so this to me was very useful. Um, I mean, the things I've said so far aren't actually that serious. Uh, you know, a dead dog, um, you know, sinus infection, bum knee, an embarrassing situation with the Swami. Uh, they're not that bad, but it has served me at other times when things have been difficult to remind myself that whatever it is I'm going through is in fact part of the purification process or to try and convince myself of that. It's constructive. It brings a little bit of peace. All these different ways that I try and connect the dots, and if I'd made a left turn here instead of there, or all that stuff, if I had taken this trail instead of that trail, my knee would be okay. Those things don't help. But to tell myself that this is part of the purification process is useful, and it brings a little bit of peace. So that is sort of part one, I would say, of what I wanted to say today, which is how to maintain a hooray for everything attitude when life reigns in your parade. Because if it's all the purification process and this purification process is leading me on towards the divine, then hooray for the purification process, which means hooray for everything because everything is part of that process. So that's part one, I would say, how I've tried to maintain hooray for everything attitude when life reigns in my parade. Now the other side of this, it seems to me, which is actually where I thought I was going to start the talk today before all these things went south, um, is how do you maintain this attitude of hooray for everything when life starts raining on other people's parades? That's the other big question here, right? You see this world around you with all these problems, and, and uh, how, do you, how do you meet that? And I originally got this title for the talk from a... Uh, <clears throat> Simpsons TV show that I saw a long time ago when I was working in the lab at UCLA. Um, I was, it was a big lab. This, at the time, it was the second big, biggest academic plasma lab in the country behind Princeton. And it's gotten bigger since I left, so it's probably still true. Anyway, at 6 o'clock in this lab, everybody stopped doing everything. I was living in the monastery in Hollywood, so I wasn't really ready for this. But everybody stopped doing everything, and they went in front of the television and watched The Simpsons at 6 o'clock. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Uh, and I was living in the monastery, and I didn't watch TV, really, because, you know, I'm in the monastery, and I'd maybe seen The Simpsons once or twice. And so this thing happens in the lab, where the lab just shuts down at 6, and everybody watches The Simpsons. And <clears throat> so I figured out that I don't really like this show. 
Um, you know, it's irreverent and it's not that funny. Uh, and so can't I just work through this? But you can't. It's kind of a big lab. There's a lot of people there. It's nice to have them around. They're all watching TV. And besides, I'm the new guy. It's expe politically expedient to go watch TV with everybody else. So I succumb to The Simpsons. And then after a few, you know, after a long enough time, I fall in love with the show. And I just, this is a digression, but I can't resist. The effect of company in our lives. You know, without this, I'm not like watching The Simpsons is a bad thing, but without this, I would have seen the show once or twice, and that would have been it, because I didn't really like it. But you sit down with a group of people, and you do this thing day after day, and okay, it sold me on the show. And this is why we come to Vedanta and put up with each other. This is why we come here instead of doing other things. You know, we can hang around with, what, lawyers, engineers, plumbers, hairdressers, whoever it is that our, our cadre that we would naturally interact with in the world. But we don't do that. Instead of that, instead of hanging around with the happy hairdressers, we go to the irritating Vedantists. You know, I just had a, a phone call a few days ago from one devotee, he went to one of our functions and he had just a list of irritations. He was angry at the cook at this thing. He was angry at, at one of the senior devotees, got up and said some things that offended him. And all the swamis were there. They did this, this, and this. And he had to leave early because he was, just couldn't stand another minute of this place, you know. And I listened to all of this. And uh, yeah, we can irritate each other. Why do we do this? Why do we put up with each other? Because we have a higher ideal. The happy hairdressers, I mean, they might be nice people, but they're, they're not aiming for the moon like we are. We're striving for God realization and spiritual growth. Oneness and love, I mean, these high ideals. And yes, we all are short of it, almost all of us. Every once in a while you meet some wonderful, amazing soul that isn't. But the rest of us are kind of kicking around in the shallow end of the pool, and we need to be nice to each other. Right? Anyway, so that's the end of my digression. Back to The Simpsons. Uh, <clears throat> so there was a song on The Simpsons called Hooray for Everything, and it was Homer was watching a football game, and it was the halftime show. And the halftime show had a group called Hooray for Everything. And this aired, I looked it up for this talk, this aired back in 1990, a long time ago now. And so I'd forgotten this, but back then, Super Bowl shows were not what they are now. They were very tame affairs. Typically, they had like a college drill team that you never saw before and would probably never see again, and some over-the-hill musicians you'd forgotten all about. And they had a theme. Each Super Bowl halftime show had a theme. And this particular year, when The Simpsons came out, it was Peanuts, Charlie Brown, Snoopy, those people. And Peanuts was experiencing a 40th anniversary. And effectively, the theme was Hooray for Peanuts was the Super Bowl. And every year, basically, you could summarize the Super Bowl theme as Hooray for something. And so when the Simpsons said Hooray for everything, they were satirizing what was basically kind of a phony optimism. So the reference is dated, but it's still carries a point, which is that optimism, which is phony, isn't particularly appealing or inspiring. 
when we, when we just pretend that everything's okay, hooray for everything, just pay no attention to that man behind the curtain and say hooray for everything because it feels good, that doesn't seem real, it doesn't seem intellectually honest. And yet at the same time we have to admit that optimistic people seem happier. So what we'd really like to have is a kind of honest optimism. Yes, we want to focus on the silver lining of the cloud. We want to do that. But to deny the existence of the cloud and say it's all silver lining doesn't quite seem healthy. And uh, if we look at religion, we actually find that they seem to encourage this to some extent, a kind of impossible optimism. Uh, in the New Testament, Christ says, judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not and ye shall not be condemned. Now, condemn not and ye shall not be condemned, that seems maybe like a good idea. Let's be nice to people. Judge not. Can you really get through life without judging? Is it possible? I mean, you have to judge a little bit here. To judge not, it just doesn't seem realistic. And you find something like this in just about every religion. Our own probably most salient exponent of this is Holy Mother. Uh, she's big on not finding faults. And she says, to see the faults of others, one should never do it. I never do so. Again, this seems difficult to think that we could realistically do this. Sri Ramakrishna actually raises the bar in one point, he says, don't find fault with anyone, not even an insect. Well, I mean, the next mosquito that's on my arm, I'm going to smack it. Is it possible that I could do that without finding fault with the mosquito? Seems dubious. And yet, we find that people who do find fault, however legitimate it is, however real the cloud is, the people who focus on that, they're not happy. And the people who focus on the silver lining, they are happy. And yet... We want the truth. We can't just say it's all a silver lining here. Hooray for everything and just sweep all the negative stuff under the rug. Every once in a while we feel like we have to judge. Every once in a while we've got to smack a mosquito. We're just going to have to do it. So how do we get through this? How do we find an intellectually honest way to be perfectly optimistic, to say hooray for everything? Where is this? method. There is a um, par parable in the gospel that uh, <clears throat> I think illustrates the way forward here. Um, there's a group of devotees come to visit Sri Ramakrishna <clears throat> and they, they're strangers. He doesn't know them. And one person in the group is an arrogant jerk. Uh, he is aggressive, opinionated, likes to rattle off Sanskrit verses just to display his erudition, and is generally a nuisance to everyone who shows up, including his friends, even they don't like him. And so and one of his big agenda items here is to test Sri Ramakrishna and see how spiritual he is. Actually, it seems more like he's interested in disproving his alleged spirituality. That's what it seems like he's trying to do. And so he's making everyone uncomfortable. And what does Sri Ramakrishna do? Treats him with great respect, doesn't get offended, none of that. In fact, at one point, 
Sri Ramakrishna jumps up from his seat and goes and spreads an umbrella for this man to make sure that the sun doesn't hit his body. So not only is he showing him respect, he's being subservient, even obsequious. And so eventually all these things happen, the guy leaves. And then the devotees say, you know, what's the deal? This, why did you act this way? Vivekananda. See, we can be thankful that Vivekananda is there to raise these points. And uh, Sri Ramakrishna has the perfect answer, right? The problem here is, are you just pretending this guy isn't a jerk? Is that what you're doing? Are you just pretending he's okay? No, that's not what he's doing. His answer, when he's asked this question, he says, it is God himself who sports in this world as both vidya and avidya, knowledge and ignorance. Therefore, I salute both. Salute everything. It is God who is the sinner. It is God who is the saint. It is God who is all of it. Salute it all. Hooray for everything, basically, is what he's saying. But he's not saying Hooray for the cloud. What he's saying is there is something higher than this apparent good and evil. Behind this appearance, there is a higher reality that is what we really want to salute. We want not to salute the manifestation, not the particular, this is good, that's bad. We want to salute the truth behind it, the transcendent truth behind the apparent manifestation. That is the solution to this. So hooray for everything doesn't mean ignore the cloud and pretend it's all roses and, and butterflies and daffodils. It doesn't mean that. What it means is there is a greater reality behind that that we want to become aware of. And that's what we're going to salute. That is the everything that we're saying hooray for. And why don't we see this? Why aren't we tuned in to this higher reality? Well, it's because we're too caught up in the push and the pull. The stuff that's scary scares us too much. The stuff that we like, we like too much. We run after it. And then we run away from the stuff that we don't like. And we're so caught up in enjoying the things that we want and running from the things that we don't want that we can't see the one behind it. That is the Vedantic idea. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. And that may be very difficult for us to accept when we look around the world and see all the things that are going on, uh, we have so many wars and all these things, and you look at the history of the human race and all the cruelty and all that, how can you not be pulled in by this story? There was a, another devotee came to the desert a few weeks ago, and he was having a problem with Trump. He, he came and he was complaining about Trump. And he's a lifelong Republican, but he's one of these lifelong Republicans that can't stand Trump. And his question was effectively, how can I say hooray for Trump when I hate him? And, I mean, it seems to me that at this time, you don't try and say hooray for Trump or whatever it is, you just change the channel, right? We don't, I mean, if, if, if Trump is really causing us, or whatever it is, is really causing us an emotional problem, we don't need 
to look at this thing. People have this, we have this idea, he had this idea, and other people have had this idea. We need to stay informed. We have a duty to stay informed. Well, it's impossible to stay informed on everything. You're going to have to pick and choose. So there is a certain amount of silver lining that we have to elect to enter into our consciousness. We don't have any duty to harp on the cloud. That isn't, that we don't, we're, we don't owe that to this world, and it's not making anyone happier to do that. That's why, as the psychologist found, when we spend half of our time daydreaming, we're miserable. And the more time we spend daydreaming, the more miserable we are. Because for whatever reason, we're not harping on the silver lining. We're harping on the cloud. That's just how the mind works. The natural tendency of the mind is downward, as Holy Mother says. We have to watch this thing and police it. Anyway, so we have to be able to step back a little bit from the push and pull of this world and at least admit the possibility that there is something higher behind it. And I realize this is difficult. And so what I'm going to do is read an account of someone who actually had an experience where he saw this. He saw that all the craziness of the world, somehow or other that we don't understand, adds up to the welfare of everyone in the long run. A few months ago, I guess, I was here and I gave a talk called What is Divine Love? And it was from uh, an account I found in a book called Cosmic Consciousness, written by a man named Richard Buck. Richard Buck went around and collected a bunch of these divine revelation stories because he had his own. He was a Canadian psychiatrist and one day he had this amazing experience. Like William James, also had he met Vivekananda, he had an amazing experience, then he wrote Varieties of Religious Experience because he wanted to figure out what was this thing. And so Richard Buck did the same thing. He had this experience, and then he thought, I have to devote my life to figuring out what that was and, and meet other people who have had this, and so he writes this book, Cosmic Consciousness. So this is his experience, the author's experience. And uh, he, his experience happens out of the blue. He comes home... Uh, this is a hundred plus years ago, so he's in a, a horse and buggy. Comes home in a horse and buggy from a night of poetry reading. And he's feeling pretty good, thinking about the poetry that he's read. Calm, meditative state, sattvic state, right? Last week, Swami made it on to talk about God sattva. So he's in a sattvic state of mind. And then suddenly his whole life changes. He says, all at once, without warning of any kind, I found myself wrapped around, as it were, by a flame-colored cloud. For an instant, I thought there was a fire, some sudden conflagration in the city. The next moment, I knew that the light was within myself. This is, according to Vedanta, the vision of divine lights. And our Swami Prabhupada, who founded this center, said that this could happen at any time. This vision of light can happen anytime, and he himself had a few experiences of this where just it seemed like from a clear blue sky, there was a bolt of lightning from nowhere. And so that's what happens to Richard Buck. He says, directly afterwards, came upon me a sense of exaltation, of immense joyousness, accompanied or immediately followed by an intellectual illumination impossible to describe. Into my brain streamed one momentary lightning flash of splendor which has ever since enlightened my life. 
Upon my heart fell one drop of bliss, leaving thenceforward forever an aftertaste of heaven. So this is the hallmark of a legitimate spiritual experience. Sometimes, especially when I was in Trabuco, people would come and they'd say this or that happened to them. They were in the shrine and they saw something or whatever, assuming that they're not on drugs or something, which sometimes they are. Uh, but assuming we're sober and we're sane, what was this thing that just happened to me in the shrine or when I was singing or whatever it was, something, I saw something or I felt something, was it just my imagination? We have this question sometimes. This is the hallmark here. Does it elevate us? Do we feel exalted from it? Do we feel ennobled by it? Do we feel empowered by it? When it's over, does it give us a strength to carry on in our lives that we didn't have before? These are all the questions that we want to ask ourselves about a spiritual experience. Was it real? What's the effect of it? And so he continues. This is the punchline. Finally, I'm getting to it. He says, Among other things, I did not come to believe, but I saw and knew that the cosmos is not dead matter, but a living presence. That the soul of man is immortal. That the universe is so built and ordered that without any doubt, all things work together for the good of each and all. See, that's the key. That's why I picked this one. All things work together for the good of each and all. There is a way from a higher state of consciousness to connect the dots in such a way that is not available to us now in our current states where, yes, somehow all this adds up to the welfare of one and all. That is why I picked this experience, right? Because what we have is a lower state of consciousness and we connect these dots in all these ways that just make us crazy. When the mind is elevated, there is a way, apparently, that we can actually see, not just believe. Yes, I believe everything's going to be okay in the end. Not that. Seeing, knowing that actually it's all working for the good of everyone. <clears throat> okay, all things work together for the good of each and all, that the foundation principle of the world is what we call love. And that the happiness of everyone is in the long run absolutely certain. Now, how wonderful would it be to have that knowledge, to know that everything is working for the welfare of one and all, all the, the doom scrolling on the phone and the Trumps and the wars and the everything else and the sordid history of the humanity, all these things, somehow, in some impossible way, it is all adding up to the good of each and all. We can't see that right now. In this higher state of consciousness, he sees this. And I believe this. I believe that this is true. And yet, at the same time, although I think this is so wonderful to know that it's all going to be okay, and that it's all based on love, and that in the end, ultimately, we are all going to find happiness without any doubt. I love that idea, and yet it's not good enough. Why isn't it good enough? It's not good enough because saying someday everything's going to be okay isn't as good as saying everything's okay right now. That's what I really want. That's what I really want to hear. I want to know that right now everything is perfect. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord is everywhere and always perfect. It doesn't say someday he'll be perfect. 
everywhere, right? That's what I really want. I want to know now, that it's perfect now, that it's all love now, and that there's only bliss and happiness now. That's really what we want. Can we have that? Yes. Sri Ramakrishna had this, I think, probably the most beautiful <coughs> account of this experience that I know of. The ultimate hooray for everything experience he has in the Kali Temple at Dakshineswar. He says, The Divine Mother revealed to me in the Kali Temple that it was she who had become everything. She showed me that everything was full of consciousness. The image was consciousness. The altar was consciousness. The water vessels were consciousness. The marble floor was consciousness. All was consciousness. I found everything inside the room soaked in bliss. I saw a wicked man in front of the Kali temple, but in him also I saw the power of the Divine Mother vibrating. Then, like a madman, I began to shower flowers in all directions. There it is. Hooray for everything. Because right now, it is all soaked in bliss. Every one of us, the temple, the pillars, all of it. If we had that awareness, right now, hooray for everything is true. It's real. We're just not there yet. And yet, I would say... Once we admit some of the sordid history of the human race or current events or whatever, we find, okay, well, this is just difficult to swallow. But if we've been doing this for some time, we've been you know, going to pujas or practicing our meditation or singing our bhajans or kirtans or whatever we're doing or practicing our yoga, we get a little tiny glimpse. We may not have... Richard Buck's wonderful experience where, you know, the lights, vision of light, and this knowledge that everything's going to be okay, and we're probably not at Sri Ramakrishna's level where everything is soaked with God's bliss. Nevertheless, we get a little tiny taste of religious ecstasy. And what happens? We find that it just, it fills us up. We don't, we can't believe it, and we wonder, where is it coming from, and what's it about? It's not about anything. It is completely non-specific. It is just joy that saturates our being. Even if we get a little glimpse of this, we understand that much. It is just joy, complete, non-specific, hooray for everything, joy. That's what it is. It's not I'm happy for something. It's just happiness saturating us. And that, according to Vedanta, that hooray for everything happiness, that non-specific happiness where it soaks everything that we see is really the only thing that's ever going to satisfy us. Because as soon as it's particular, as soon as we're happy about something, then there's room for improvement. I had a good night out with my friends, and next time it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be better. I saw a good movie. The next movie, it's got to be better. We never say, oh, that was a good enough night with my friends out. I don't need to have another. I don't, I've had enough fun with them. I don't need any more fun. That movie was fun enough. The next movie, I don't care if it's fun or not. Everything has got to be better every single time. We always want to improve on it. But when we have that non-specific 
joy saturating our being. It's not about anything. There's no thing to improve on. It just fills us. That is the only thing that is going to satisfy us. We must have this. We all must reach this. This is the only thing that's going to work for us. And so there are these two hooray for everything situations. The one, hooray for everything when life is raining on my parade, I said purification process. And then hooray for everything in spite of all the apparent evil in the world, life is raining on other people's parades. What I've offered basically, hopefully, is a somewhat persuasive argument for faith in a higher ideal. What I did not say was it's all part of the purification process. When other people are suffering, why? Well, it just sounds a little, it can be a little dismissive or callous. Oh, whatever, he's being purified. You know, go purify that guy. Somebody, you know, we don't like and something bad happens, and he's getting purified, right? So that that's, doesn't seem like a constructive attitude. And so back to the dog. I learned a lesson from the dog on this account. I should say I was reminded of a lesson by the dog's death. I gave a a talk in Hollywood um, a few months ago called German Shepherd Yoga. I don't know if any of you saw it. Anyway, I spoke about basically the fact that I wasn't very fond of this dog and um, living with this dog was kind of a spiritual opportunity for me. Uh, You know, the dog could be charming at times. Um... He was smart, but he was a nuisance. He was a a narcissistic, neurotic, hyperactive, self-centered pain. That's what the dog was. Um, And so I take him to the vet, and he dies in the prime of doghood. He was three and a half years old. Three and a half years old, that's the prime of doghood, right? So I take him to the vet, and he dies, and it hurts. I thought, why is this hurting? I don't like this dog. I, you know, I, it didn't take me long to figure out that I didn't like the dog. And so I, I started to try and figure out within myself, why am I unhappy and sad for this dog that I actually am kind of liberated from? Um, and it's because the dog, in his way was working on his, he was going through his own purification process in a certain way. He was the runt of the litter, and he suffered, despite all of his self-centered narcissism, he suffered terribly from self-doubts. And he was constantly trying to prove himself. Every other dog behind every fence was was this ferocious bark-off where he was going to prove that he was all that and, and, you know, everything else. He was a super dog and super intimidating, and it was all very serious. His doghood was called on the line with every one of these fence-offs. And it just got worse. I got him, I got him a companion dog, an Akita. Um, and the Akita it was great in the beginning because he was the big brother, and he would show her around and how to bark at some neighborhood dogs. And, uh, and then he would occasionally treat her like a chew toy when, I, when he would get away with it. 
So it was happy, happy situation for the dog. And then the Kira, she got to be bigger and stronger and meaner than he was, and she took over the alpha position. And so he was sentenced to a life of getting beat up by his kid sister. His kid sister was pretty much going to beat him up for the rest of his life. And I thought, gosh, you know, that's not going to do much for this guy's self-doubt issues. Having your kid sister, you know, beat the crap out of you every every day is, you know, that's that's not going to do it. And so, he started digging under the fence. I think in this way to to run out and terrorize the neighborhood and prove himself to himself. And now, of course, would this ever have worked? Would it ever have actually helped him through this? Probably not. But he's working on it. And maybe he'd at least figure out that this isn't the way to do it. Something he would figure out from this. But instead, he was plucked, prematurely it seemed to me, from this purification process. And what I was forced to admit to myself was that self-doubt, that's the dog's issue. We all have some, some of this, more or less. It's maybe not our main issue, but we have some maybe. It is a stain on our divinity. We are going through this purification process here. We are trying to overcome our character defects. This effort, this purification process, is heroic and noble. There's something, there's some part of me that was rooting for this dog to beat this thing. And we all have our thing that we're trying to beat, whatever it is. That's what we're all doing here. And we need to remind ourselves when we see the other people going through things, and we instead of, oh yeah, purify, there's something glorious and noble and wonderful about this purification, that we are here heroically trying to shed our blemishes and manifest the divinity that is within us. This is something admirable, and it deserves our sympathy. And this is what I learned from the dog when he got put down by the vet, that the pain I felt was not because I was attached to the dog. It was because he was a kind of war hero that got struck down in battle. And the war we're fighting is this effort to manifest the divinity that is within us. And of course, Vedanta says, it teaches, that we all will ultimately win this war, and the dog will go on to some other dog, Loka, and, and continue his struggle, continue his battle. And then, just like Richard Buck's vision confirmed, at some point we will see that all of this ultimately is leading to the good of one and all. And that the foundation principle of this world is love. And that in the long run, the happiness of all of us is absolutely certain. And then hopefully, we will actually find it's all blissful love and joy right now, right here as Sri Ramakrishna's vision told us. That's where we're all headed. May the good Lord bless you and keep you.
May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. May good betide all. May happiness come to all. May all see the face of truth and be fortified with the armor of love, goodwill, joy, and understanding. Om peace, peace, peace. Peace be unto us. Peace be unto all. Okay, so before we meet and greet at the door, I'm going to make a couple of announcements here. Uh, the big ticket item, of course, is Durga Puja. That's on the 21st here in Santa Barbara. Um, and don't miss it. It's wonderful. And I heard them singing Aigiri Nandini this morning, which is one of my favorites. Uh, anyway, it's not to be missed. Um, so that is the 21st. This next Sunday looks like Swami Mahayogananda. No, that's not right. It's Vrajapranamataji is going to speak on Jai Ma, Glory to the Divine Mother. And then it looks like our Wednesday night class has switched from Swami Adbuddhananda to Swami Akhandananda, so that, that sounds nice. I, I don't know what book they're reading. But anyway, Swami Akhandananda is supposed to be a reincarnation of Krishna's mother. Actually, he said this to Swami Prabhavananda, the founder of this place, directly told him, that he was the reincarnation of Yashoda, Krishna's mother. So uh, worth, worth looking into his life and teachings. Um, okay, so, oh, the other thing that I, I think we should probably mention is Navaratri chanting. It's kind of a pledge drive that we have for mantras during Durga Puja season. So you pledge a certain amount of, it doesn't cost, not money. It's not that kind of pledge drive. You pledge mantras. So, uh, you say, okay, every night of the nine nights, Navaratri, Ratri is night and Nava is nine, so there's nine nights, Durga Puja. Every night you're going to do so many Jai Shri Durgas uh, added to your daily regimen of whatever it is that you do. And um, Swami Swalananda once said that it was okay if we just chanted our mantra and counted those. As, it just has to be extra. Whatever you do, it has to be extra. But you, can, you don't have to say Jai Shri Durga. You say your mantra, according to him. Uh, so that is Saturday the 14th of this month to Tuesday the 24th. Just give it a little extra push. Um, okay, so I guess that's about it. Thank you all for coming. And you're all invited to Durga Puja, and so are all of your friends. And uh, so now I'll go to the front, and we can meet and say hello. As I listen to you talk, I always enjoy your, your talks every time you come. But... Um, I guess something that's always on my mind when it comes to this is, is uh, relationship mm. with, in my case, with women or whatever, and the struggle. And getting back to what you were talking about, that, that true self. And 
in my life, the struggle's been, I connect with that, but um, I wonder, in order for me to have a relationship that's successful or, or long-lasting, I've gotten to this place where I feel like um, the other person has to have some level of that connection. So I don't know if I have a question. It's more of the, do you think I'm on the right track with that as far as? Yeah, absolutely I do. Uh, because the uh, other, it seems to be insecure and, and more, I guess, worldly. They're, they're, they're reacting all the time. Okay, well, let me see if I understand what you're saying. It sounded to me like you're talking about you need a spiritual foundation for your relationships. Is that correct? Pretty that's what much. I, that's what yeah. I heard. Yeah. Um, yeah, my, uh, my feeling is that I don't really know how any relationship can stand the test of time without that. Because mm-hmm. everything changes. The, the physical beauty, the, you know, that's going to go. And even other things that are, seem to be more long-lasting, personality traits, political opinions, all these things, they change over time. Mm-hmm. And so what is there to hold on to? Uh, my feeling is that spiritual life is the best bet. If you can have a common spiritual ideal, then you're going to have much better chance at a long-term relationship than if you don't. Other, you know, you can base relationships on other things. Some people, they love art. Other people love music or they're into whatever they're into. But if it's just the other person, it's, the, the foundation is not solid. And of all the foundations, the most solid one is the spiritual one. So I think it's important to have a third thing. You know, you like this person, this person likes you, but you have to have a third thing. And of all the third things that you can have, I think the spiritual thing is the best third thing to have. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, there has to be some foundation to a relationship, ideally spiritual, uh, that is not about you or about the other person. That, that doesn't seem to work, when, when, at least in the long term, when mm-hmm. the relationship is just based on mutual attraction and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Too, too shaky. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're on the right track. It sounded like that's what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't come up with a question, but that's always something that I, I kind of struggle with. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not alone in that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, do you think it ties together with that connection, that, that true connection ties together with the true masculine and feminine energy that... that uh... Well, I don't know. You know, I think you're getting away from my area because I'm a monk. And so, um, <laughs> I don't really, you know, as far as those kind of particulars, I don't really know if I could answer that one. Okay. Um, you know, there are people that have relationship advice for that kind of thing, and I'm probably not the best bet. I would, I would just say that, um, you know, to have a lasting love with your children, your spouse, or significant other, whatever, um, you know, that lasting love, uh, Vedanta teaches, and I believe, is the divine. You know, and, and so there has to be a manifestation of that love in something. Like I said, I mean, I think religion is the best because it is the most solid, but it could be music, it could be art, it could be something else. Some other kind of love, not just for the other person, um, I think is essential. But as far as, you know, masculine, feminine roles and those kinds of things, I'm not very good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm.
well, there's, it's just you and my mom, that's it, and, and oh. some nuns over here, yeah. <clears throat> well, I like I liked the whole speech and, and the mm. different vantage points. Um, the beginning part of it, um, which brought up cause and effect, yeah. And then for me, it goes like free will. So we're, we're free, free will is pretty much stops with my intention and then my action. That's where free will goes. Well, I think first I would ask you to define what you mean by free will. Free will. I mean, what, what, well, I'll just cut to the chase before you do that. Generally, um, free will means I get to do what I want. Is that what free will is? No, I'd rather you talk about free will. Okay. Well, that's what my understanding most people mean when they say free will. I get to do what I want. That's what I, I, get, I think most people have in mind when they say, I have free will, I can do whatever I want. And that, to me, doesn't seem like freedom. In fact, I think it's fairly, fairly clear that that's not freedom. Because the problem with that is that we're not free to want what we want. In other words, we have wants that we're free to pursue, but we can't necessarily give them up. I had a friend um, back in grad school who, uh, he was, he was uh, just a rabid atheist, super furious atheist. Like You talk about God and you just bang his fist on the table don't talk about God, atheist. And my feeling is that those are the good kinds of atheists, the ones that have a passionate feeling about it. They don't, you know, they have a strong opinion. It came out after years of knowing him that the reason he was an atheist was because he was gay and he didn't want to be gay. And if there was a God, why did God make him gay? He was the son of a a military... was a drill instructor in the Marines, and uh, his father could not accept any of this. Eventually, he did actually come out to his father and um, confess his sexuality, and he said his father didn't say a word, didn't look at him, nothing. Uh, he just went through this whole speech about you know, his life and all the conflict he'd had and how difficult it was, and his father just stayed this immobile statue, and that was the end of it. But after that, he actually changed his mind about religion, believed in God, became a minister. Um, so this idea, how free was he? Okay, he's got a sexual orientation. He's free to pursue it. You'd call that free will. But he doesn't want that. In other words, we come here with a bunch of wants, and we come here with a bunch of uh, unwants, detractions, aversions, you could say. We come here with a bunch of aversions, things we're attracted to, things we are not attracted to. Yes, we're free to run towards them and free to run away from them. Are we free not to do that? If I don't want to be gay and yet I wake up one day and I think I'm gay, that's not freedom. You know, that freeing, you know, what you want, pursuing what you want is not free will, in my opinion. And yet that's how most people define it, the freedom to do what you want. But the problem with that is you're not free to want what you want. And 
as Buddha says, want is the cause of all of our misery. Right? A want is a lack. And as soon as you lack something, it means you're not happy. You're not as happy as you could be. So this idea that freedom is found in pursuing my wants, that, that to me doesn't seem like free will. Will is a lack. I will something because I want something. I want something because I'm in pain. And so that's, you now you had a question about free will, and so that's my idea of what people call free will. Now that I've, now what's your question? Do you, does, do you still have a question on free will? It's a different subject on free will. Okay. But, but I enjoyed, I, I like a lot what you said. I think that you're absolutely right that that's um, how people treat free will. Um, mine um, was in um, cause and effect. Mm. Like if, if you, um, <clears throat> my free will can come up to a point and then, then it has to go. If I throw a baseball, I could throw the baseball, but I'm not responsible for where it goes because I have no control over it. That kind of thing. It's, it stops when I, when, I, when I do the action. I have an intention. I'm going to throw the ball over there and, you know, of a, a strike and whatever. I'm not in con- That's where it ends, right there. I'm not in control of what happens. Or if I throw a dart, it's not my control that if it hits somebody or if, if I'm angry, or if I cause somebody... Um, it's my intention that's important. Right, that's the want part. Yeah. But, but the action doesn't do it, do what the, doesn't have to do with what the intention is. It could do whatever it wants. It, I don't have control over it. Okay, so what, what's the question? That's, that's the cause and effect. It, I don't, that's where the uh, effect doesn't make sense. Well, okay, so uh, what's the effect? That, that thought came up when you talked about the scenario in the very beginning. It, it struck up that, that conversation. I'm in support of, of, of what you said before. Right, the scenario in the beginning was all the stuff that went south, the dead dog and all that. What was the scenario in the beginning? It was before the dead dog. Um, the knee and the dogs digging out, that was pretty much the very beginning. Oh, yeah, you did start with that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. When we try to look to see what happened and we think we're responsible for it, it's, it's, it may have nothing to do okay. with it. We just have to, right, right. we have something in our mind. It has to, we're an it. We also have to make everything we do an it. But we don't have control. What does Ramakrishna say about um, free will? Yeah, um, so there's a couple of good points you made there. Um, one is yes. Just like I said today, there's a sequence of events, and, and we connect the dots in a certain way, and we put ourselves in the story, right? We have this narrator in our heads, and it says, you did this, this, and this, and this caused this and this, and we, we connect these dots, right? We have all these data dots in our lives, and we connect them somewhere, and there's all these different ways to connect the dots, right? And um, yes, Vivekananda says it's all baloney. And what does Sri Ramakrishna say about this? It's all intention. What he says is that uh, the Lord looks into a man's heart and does not judge him, judge him. The Lord looks into a man's heart and does not judge him by where he lives or what he does. Now, think about just how profound that is, right? That means wearing these robes and giving lectures on Sunday, that doesn't matter. 
That's not the important thing. Intention. It's the intention of the heart. What happens when you throw the baseball? It's your intention that matters. And, and so the person who's wearing robes and giving lectures on Sunday and, and you know, the woman living in the brothel who's making her money that way, she may be ahead of you because you know, her, it's the heart, what's in her heart, that's what matters. Right? So that's, and thank God for that, really. Because where would we be if it was judged any other way? I mean, it's got to be that way. I mean, the Lord has to look into our hearts and judge us that way because we can't really help the situation we're in. We try and connect the dots this way or that way. It doesn't help us anyway, but we don't know how we got here. That's the bottom line, and we don't know where we're going. That's the truth of it. And so for God to judge us any other way than by the intention in our heart just seems completely unfair because we come to this world with our baggage. And I don't remember picking mine, and I'm sure you don't remember picking yours, uh, and so, yeah, the intention is what's important. How much love are we acting with? Are we trying to expand in love? Are we trying to give and receive and, you know, sense? Are we growing in love? That's really what our intention has to be in everything that we do. You throw a baseball and it breaks a window, but you had love behind it, fine, right? So, um, yeah, that's true. I'm a Christian's teaching on... I mean, he also, that's not exactly free will. That's intention. What he talks about free will, I mean, he says a couple of different things, actually. There's a couple of different teachings that are kind of difficult to um, put together in a coherent way. So one, one teaching, at one point he says, uh, does man have free will or anything like it? All are under the will of the Divine Mother. Not even a leaf blows except by her will. That's in one place. In another place, he talks about uh, a cow on a rope. So you are fastened to a peg, and you have a leash of a certain radius, and within that radius, you can do certain things. So how do you reconcile those two positions? That would be kind of challenging. That's a job for Swami Maidananda. He loves to do that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, but those are, those are some of the ideas he had about free will. Um, is there anything else I can think of that he said on free will? That's, that's all that's coming to me right now. Yeah. Yeah. Is that good? It's on, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I was very interested in your, um, well, everything you said today was wonderful, <laughs> thank you. Mm. But um, the, when you see somebody, when we see uh, suffering, and, and somebody suffering, and, um, and you say, I have an intention to, to help them, and, and I want to, um, but it, it might not be working, or how, how far? Again, I, maybe this rope idea with the, being uh, on a tether is important to understand that, that uh, we have free will, yet um, we're limited in as far as what we can do to actually be God and look into the intention of, of a perpetrator's heart, and mm -hmm. or, or you know to see. The, or to, to judge people by their actions. Which is all we can do, really, in our current state, yeah. Right. But if it's... Um, but there are, there are things that we should be doing, I think. Okay, so... Um, 
general here. All right, so what you're, it sounded like what you're saying is how can we be sure that we're really helping someone? Right. Even That's kind of what I got. So because you have the best of intentions and yet everything doesn't seem to be. Just kind of falls to pieces. Yeah, I think we've all had that experience. Oh, right. Thank you. But you know, again, in line with today's talk, does everything really fall to pieces? I mean, do we really know that? I mean, if you believe uh, Richard Buck's vision, mm -hmm. there's no such thing as everything falling to pieces. Mm -hmm. Your intention is what matters. The apparent result is something that you interpret to yourself in some way mm -hmm. based on your actions and you think it went like this, this, and this, and this caused this and that and the other thing. Mm -hmm. But the intention, that, according to Sri Ramakrishna's teaching, is the important thing, the intention. And yes, uh, sometimes we intend things to, to, we have the best of intentions, and it just seems like it all falls apart. This actually, um, it's interesting, this is a metaphor that is uh, explained by a particular demon in the Chandi. We're having Durga Puja coming up, so I'm going to talk about this demon. Um, this demon in the Chandi, his name is Rakta Bija. And Rakta Bija, he's got this gimmick. Maybe you know this. I know you're an old timer, so maybe. Okay. Anyway, Rakta Bija, um, every time you try and kill him and he, he bleeds, he dro a, a drop of blood falls on the ground, another Rakta Bija pops up. So as many times as you strike him, and as many drops of blood fall on the ground, so many more demons come into being, right? What is this? What does this mean? This is a metaphor for karma. We try in some situation, and we're going to fix it, and we wind up breaking two things when we try and fix the first thing. And the more we try and fix, the more everything seems to fall apart. We intend the best. We intend to kill the demon, and yet... We find, at the end of all of our efforts, the world is filled with demons because we've got all these wounds, all this blood, and there's all these demons all over the place. So this is the metaphorical example of your question, right? There you have, we have good intentions, things just seem to get worse. That's what's covered in the chandi. This demon is a metaphor for our karma. And so what happens in the chandi? That's the only time in the Chandi that the gods get dejected, is when Raktabija, his blood fills the whole world. The whole world is full of demons, because you've hit this guy so many times, there's demons everywhere. The devas in heaven actually lose hope. They think the Divine Mother's going to lose this battle. It's the only time in the Chandi where they actually get dejected. And so, what happens is, the Divine Mother looks and sees the gods are dejected and think that she's going to lose, and she laughs at them. And then she just tells Kali, she basically, in so many words, she decides that she's just going to swallow all these demons. Swallow it all. And I think, at that point, when we have tried our best with the best of intentions, and we have found that we've made a bigger mess of the situation than we started with, that's the time to pray for help. Okay, Mother, this is what I try to do, and this is what I think has happened with it, which, like I said before, we don't really know. It's just our idea. Nevertheless, it seems to me that I've made a bigger mess than I started with here, even though I had the best of intentions. And then, please, eat, eat rock to bija for me. Save the situation. Save me from this. I started with the best of intentions. Rescue me from this. That's what I see as really 
the only hope in that situation because none of us, that's what we do. We have the best of intentions and things just frequently don't turn out the way we wanted them to. What else can you do in that situation except pray? Anyway, so I'm, it's a kind of a simple answer in a long-winded way, but, you know. I think it relates also to, you, to what you're saying about the experience of, um, um, I forgot his name, the one you spoke about. Richard Buck, the author? Yes. Yeah. Because there again, you know, if you do pray and meditate and practice and allow the stillness to come in, then, um, and just wait, you know, wait for wait for an answer. That's not from your, your mind in connecting the dots, you know. Uh, that's then a clarity will will probably come to to help see. Uh, well, that's the other point I was trying to make is that we we've done something with the best of intentions, and we think it's fallen apart. We don't know that. That's our current level of understanding. From a higher standpoint, as we saw in Richard Buck's vision today, there is a standpoint where we see that somehow everything adds up to the good and the welfare of all. And I admit, this is extremely difficult to accept when we doom scroll through the phone's news feed uh, or you know, whatever political situation is bothering us. It's very difficult to accept this premise. And so that's why I took... Buck's experience, and then I went after that to Sri Ramakrishna's even more exalted, higher experience of seeing everything perfect now. And then I tried to relate that to our own individual experience of religious joy so that we can see at least the kernel of this experience in ourselves. We can see at least the seed of hooray for everything, everywhere, all the time, right now included, in ourselves, and then extrapolate to where this is going. So I have some religious ecstasy now. It feels wonderful, non-specific. It leads, at some point, to Richard Buck's vision, where he sees that despite the apparent mess of the world, it's all heading towards something good. And then past Richard Buck's vision, there's Sri Ramakrishna's experience, where it is the Lord is everywhere and always perfect all the time, including right now. So that was the idea. And, and this idea that, that you know, we, we do something and it doesn't turn out the way we want it to, I think that's a big teacher for us that we're going to have to understand that we're learning humility. That's part of the purification process right there. Trying with the best of intentions to do something, having it fall apart, and then realizing that we don't have the ability that, we, that we'd like to have, and a little humility dawns on us, that in itself is purifying. Oh, I just have one more thing. I just thought that um, uh, Vivekananda spoke about work as worship. Hmm. So, again, intention is one thing, and then work is another thing. What, what, uh, what is my work, and what, what is our work, and what... What are, what are we here for to do, and how are we serving others? So, in in some sense, um, work can go on in spite of what seems to be a failure. I, I, um. 
Right. Okay. So what you're talking about is is basically offering the fruits. <coughs> you're talking about offering the fruits of our work. You know, when Swami Vivekananda says that um, work as worship, you know, that's a higher level. Right now, what we do is we work, and then we think after it's over, okay, God, you know, I don't know what happened there, but I'd, I'd like to give it to you. And then we try and do that as best we can. We try and surrender. Like I gave this talk today. Okay, Lord. This talk was for you. It's work. It's worship. And then you take the results of this talk. And then I go home or back to the desert. And in the car, I think, gosh, I should have said this, or I should have said that, or, how, or I really said this wonderful thing. I'm still attached to the job that I did. So that, that's where we are. We're trying to do this thing. But when Swami Vivekananda says work is worship, it's really a higher level. What he's talking about, it seems to me, is when, as Krishna says in the Gita, when your heart is expanded and, as Krishna says in the Gita, united with the Lord, that work is worship. That work is worship. It's not the kind of work that you and I do where, you know, I give a talk and, oh, shucks, or how great, or whatever I think, and then I, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to offer it to God, but then I should have said this, and, you know, we're all over the map here, you know, with this stuff. Um, You know, that's... That's where we are. But what Swami Vivekananda says when work is worship, that's another level up. That's another level up. That's, that's what we're shooting for. Let's, let's keep, we'll keep going for that one. It goes right back to the intention of the heart. Right. Well, intention, yes. But what he's talking about is culmination. When your heart is actually full, when you have that... I mean, you ha- you're operating from a different standpoint. You're not really thinking about an end you are full of love in your work. It's all right now. So the intention part isn't so strong at that point when work really is worship. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine this, really, because we don't, we're not there. So generally what we do is we work and we try and be unselfish and nice, and then we try and offer it after it's over, and that's where we are. But then when it's really worship, the heart is full. And we don't think about how it turns out or any of these things that we ordinarily do. Yeah. Regret or hope or any of it. None of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's love in the moment. That is work is worship. Yeah, so that's a very high teaching. Yeah. Yeah, nice. It's a lofty thought. Yeah. One more question. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, uh, just so I just again I'm going off of things I kind of work through, mm. but um, just my questions on conditioning. At, you know, when you're as a child and you're conditioned by your parents or teachers or people around you, and you become this personality, and um, and then what's happened, you, you become an adult and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a product of all this conditioning. Hmm. And so what I'm, my question is, uh, from a spiritual standpoint, I, you know, I'm trying to kind of massage that and unravel that conditioning to have my own connection to who I really am. So I... Um, and the only way I can kind of work through that is spiritually. So I'm just curious 
maybe with your own personal experience of that conditioning and what you've done or looked at that in your life or whatever, um, how, have you, how have you massaged that conditioning? Maybe the patriarchy of a male, things like that, that uh, that's put on us. Is, is that making sense? So it sounds like what you're saying is um, you've developed certain habits of thinking because of the influences mm -hmm. of your earlier life right. that you would like to, now you're reevaluating those ideas that you have. And, and you're putting thinking, those ways of thinking on others and things mm -hmm. like that. Right, and, and, but it's really, I think the root of the problem, if there is one, is a habit of thinking. And yes, we are, that's I think what you mean by conditioning is that we are conditioned to think in a certain way. You said you mentioned patriarchy, so that's an example. Mm -hmm. um, yes, from habits of thinking come habits of doing. Um, and then from habits of, you know, the character that we have is a collection of habits of doing. So you say someone is a thief, they're in the habit of stealing. You say someone is... Um, a saint, they're in the habit of doing nice things, being nice to people. Uh, so our lives, I mean, and then of course religion will tell you that this character that we have, this collection of habits, determines our destiny. So you've got habits of thinking to habits of doing to a collection of habits of doing called a character, and then a character leading to a destiny. Destiny being either in this world or some other, depending on how things go. Sometimes you see people's destinies manifest, and other times it seems like they get off scot-free and they say, oh, well, in the next world he'll pay for it or he'll get rewarded or whatever. But anyway, religion will tell you, and sometimes you can even see for yourself in this world, uh, destiny catching up with people. But you have this basic kind of chain of of of, of events here, where you have a habit of thinking, and from thoughts, actions proceed. And then you have a habit of doing, and then a collection of habits of doing is a character. And then a character means you're a good person, a bad person, a thief, a saint, whatever you are. And then you will have a, a destiny that is in accordance with your character. So what you're talking about, I think it seems you're, you're in between one and two there, where you have a habit of thinking that has led you to a habit of doing that you are now reevaluating and you are trying to maybe change your habits of doing because you don't like what it's doing to people around you or whatever. You're not, it's not all of them, of course. It's some of them you don't like. We all, I think, have some of habits of doing that we're not entirely happy with, most people anyway. And so the question is, how do we overcome habits? That's really it. That's really the question. How do we overcome habits? And, you know, I mean, it'd be nice if there was a magic Vedanta bullet that I could give you there, but the fact is that Swami Vivekananda, and my experience as well, and I think everyone who's been in practicing yoga and meditation and karma yoga and all these things for all these years, will tell you the same thing, that it is long and steady drill that undoes the habits of thinking that have led to our habits of doing. It is a battle to change our habits of thinking. This is why, this is one of the reasons anyway, why you practice meditation, is to identify your own habits of thinking. Once you've identified, because there's a lot of them we're not even aware of. We're just on autopilot. But first we identify them through trying to 
whatever we do in meditation. Focus the mind, withdraw the mind, empty the mind, watch the breath, whatever we're doing. What we get is a clearer impression of our habits of thinking. Once we've identified them, then the task comes of, of the task, the next job is to you know, overcome the ones that are troubling us. And this is just like going to the gym. You just got to keep going there and lifting weights and getting stronger and better at it. You know, every time you do something unselfish, whether it's prayer or some charity work for somebody else, something kind, some yoga activity, something where you're trying to break the habits of selfishness and pain that are making us unhappy, that is a blow to the chains that bind us. Unfortunately, many blows seem to be required because at least according to... Now this, to me... (coughs) You know, the dogmatic explanation of why so many blows are required to break the chain of our habits isn't really that important. You can come up with a bunch of past life theories or whatever, however you want to explain this. The fact is that it is difficult to change the habit that we just learned a month ago. You know, you can pick up a bad habit pretty quickly, it seems. And so you have to be careful. This is one of the reasons why we want to be regular in our practice because we don't want to pick up any new bad habits. And as far as the old bad habits go, again, for me, one of the most effective things to do in this situation is pray. Pray. Some of these habits I have are strong and difficult to overcome. And you, you say your prayers or your mantra or whatever and you just hear the same negative thought pattern in your head again and again. Pray for help. It does get better. I can promise you that. But I can't tell you that there's like a quick thing to fix it. Because just like you said, we have been conditioned over whatever amount of time, this life, other lives, God knows. And that winding of the thread that has taken so long to wind up, it's going to take some time to unwind. We have to be patient with ourselves. We have to be patient with others. And we have to be perseverance, persevering in our practice, sincere in our purpose, persevering in our practice. Those are the two hallmarks of success. Sincerity of purpose, perseverance in our practice. It does get better. I wish I could say something quick. Sorry. Somebody says that there's a guy got a quick fix, you be careful, hold on to your wallets. <clears throat> I think she did you have? So there's something over there. Oh she knew, okay. Um, thank you for your talk this morning. Mm. Um, I guess I have a couple of questions. One in that when you talked about I can't remember what the description of um, the uh, divine um, consciousness, the William Burke. I have had an experience like that once mm. before, and um, it was incredibly powerful, and I've reflected back on it, and I think done what you described, like, well, what happened to make that occur? Because, boy, would I like to have that happen again. Um, and so it was really helpful to understand this idea of just joy or bliss behind everything. Um, well, and remember, in Buck's vision, yeah. um, as he said, before, before this sudden light hit him, 
he was in a state of what he called quiet and passive enjoyment, mm-hmm. what we would call sattva. And the reason we practice this yoga and meditation and, and uh, you know, unselfish living and all these things that we try and do is to try and make the sattvic condition of mind the baseline. That's what we're trying to do. Because once we make the sattvic condition of, of mind the baseline, we are more and more able to enter into these higher states of consciousness, these blissful states that I, I read about today. So that's why we do this practice, is for that. I mean, also, it helps us to overcome some of our negative habits. I mean, these things go together. But once the negative habits aren't bothering us quite as much as they were, there is a, a calmness of mind that we reach that allows us easier entry into these higher states of consciousness. Yeah, so that's, that's why we're here. Yeah. That was one. What was part two? I was curious oh. in the book or in other um, experiences that you heard about if, um, if that happened for people in moaning about others or thinking about something higher because I was in a yoga class when it occurred and in, for me when it happened the one and only time in my life it was when I was thinking about my daughter and not necessarily asking for anything, but just to be strong for her. So I was just kind of curious if, um, if there's any link to that, if like... Sure sounds like there was to me. But um, what you're asking, you know, I think it's just too general yeah. uh, to say because so many different people under so many different circumstances have had these kinds of experiences. Like Swami, I said, I referred to Swami Prabhavananda. Uh, he had some experiences where he actually said he wasn't really feeling particularly devoted or anything. He said he went into a temple one time and was not really, he felt kind of dry and you know maybe not very interested in what was going on in the temple and suddenly just bam, from out of the blue, he has this overwhelming experience. So the truth, as Sri Ramakrishna says, is that or as Jesus says, right? No one knows the hour of, of, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No one knows the hour. And Sri Ramakrishna also says that, that the realization of self is possible for all without any exception. And so when and how that happens, I don't think there's any limitation. It sounded to me like you had some kind of moment of sincerity and maybe a real sort of, I don't know, some, some, a moment of sincerity. I don't know how to say it any better than that. And that, uh, that might have instigated it, but I'm just guessing. And, and uh, you know, one of the problems with the moment of sincerity that brings on a spiritual experience is that you can't duplicate the moment of sincerity because you're not sincere anymore, right? right? You're trying to duplicate it again, so that's gone. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, the best bet... <laughs> best bet, uh, of course, I think, is the Vedanta prescription, which is regular practice. Regular practice is the thing that that helps us to tune ourselves, our minds, and our our lives to a state where we are more likely to experience these things. At the same time, you know, to really draw a line and say you have to be like this or like that, or you can do this or that, you know, it just doesn't seem to, there's no cause and effect there, just like anywhere else. You can't really. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, one other quick question. Uh-huh. Um, when you talked about the purification process, mm. that was um, really helpful as well, just in terms of trying to understand the path that I've chosen lately in work and that other woman who was talking about um, 
you know, purposeful work and, and how to spend our time while we're here. Um, I guess my question is, is there benefit to going off to like do a meditation retreat to try to obtain some kind of clarity in your mind as to what your purpose is or what I have found is that I'm on this path and I'm trying some different things and then I want to change path again and try something else. And so today when you spoke about the purification process, on the one hand in my mind I think, oh, you know, stay on whatever path that you're on so that you can learn whatever lesson it is in that line of work or about yourself. And then another part of me feels like, you know, because time is limited and because I, you know, I worked in nonprofit for about seven years and it was hugely important. And I know what that feels like then if you already know that, just go and, and do that. Does that make sense? Like I'm, I'm well, yeah, there's a few things in there I'd like to point out. One is that, um, you know, first you started with the meditation retreat and the all-day thing. Yeah. I think that any efforts that we make, any spiritual effort that we make is not wasted. They're all good. On the other hand, I think it's also good to stick with a particular program. You know, this is why you have a guru, uh, because you ideally you pick a guru after much selection of someone you have great faith and you find someone you have great faith in and you will stick to their teaching because they can diagnose your spiritual problem better than you can. That's the problem you're having, right? Is it is this going to solve my spiritual problem or is this? Which one of these is better? Uh, you know, there are people who are qualified to make that call. I'm not one of them. Um, and so you want to find one of those and then stick to that program because otherwise you come into danger just what you said here, which is well, I tried this for a while. It's like digging a hole for water. Yeah. That's the illustration Sri Ramakrishna gives in the gospel, that you dig so far and you hit sand and you say, oh, well, this must be the wrong place. You dig somewhere else and you just dig all these holes and you never hit water. You have to stick with one place and dig. But the problem is whenever you do that, eventually you're going to come up with some obstacle. You're going to hit sand. You're going to hit rocks. You're going to hit something. You're going to hit the wall. We all do. And at that point, when you hit the wall, you have to have enough faith to push forward. So you have to have faith in the teachings of the guru or whoever your teacher is. So it's important. This is why you want to have a spiritual teacher. Uh, so that's the other thing. The third thing I wanted to say is I, the one thing about these Vipassana retreats where they spend all day meditating that I think is maybe not entirely realistic is um, you, know, you expect you're going to have a big breakthrough, uh, you know, the mind is an instrument, just like a guitar or a violin. And I don't know if you ever played a musical instrument, but if you spend eight hours in a day trying to teach yourself the guitar, at the end of the day, you would have bloody fingers, but you wouldn't be much better of a guitar player. It is something that you have to do day in and day out regularly for years, and then you become someone who can play the guitar or the violin or piano or whatever, to have one of these... You know, all-day intensive piano days when you don't play the piano the rest of your life and expect that this is going to make you a better piano player is not realistic. And the mind is a more complicated instrument than any of these musical instruments. And so I would say, yes, uh, any kind of effort, spiritual efforts, is good. A Vipassana retreat is good. To try and think that this is going to be a, a magic bullet that's going to save your life, well, it could be. I don't want to say it isn't. But on the other hand... It's, you know, it's not, it's not terribly realistic. It's kind of like 
these higher states of consciousness. Yes, they can happen to anyone at any time. How often do they actually happen? Well, you know, I know a few. You know, there's a lot of people trying and not a whole lot of people that are having them. It's, it's not that common. So to just go in with, to the Vipassana retreat or whatever it is with an idea of practice and growth and not necessarily winning the lottery. And you know, there are other people that might not agree with that prescription. Some people think live in the expectation of winning the lottery every second. And there's value to that attitude. Um, so you have to kind of pick where you are there. I, don't, I think I've sort of left the, <laughs> I've left the uh, issue a little muddled at the end because there is that other attitude to try and live in the expectation of imminent grace. That's another practice that people have. But what I've seen in practice is people go to these Vipassana retreats and they think that after a day of meditation they're, they're better at meditating, which I just doubt. Having done it for so many decades and also having played musical instruments, that's just not how instruments work. It takes time and practice and regular struggle. That's, that's how to get the mind under control. Uh, it's like I was saying to him, it is a, a, a regular drill that you have to undergo. And yes, the occasional retreats, especially in the company of a bunch of other people that are striving for a higher ideal, is beneficial. Um, but we can't do that at the expense of a daily practice. We've got to have a daily practice as well. I guess that's the balance point. Now, now I finally, I've, I think I've recovered. That's the balance point. So yes, go to the Vipassana retreat, but also have a daily practice. Just like you play an instrument, you have a daily practice, and then you get together with a bunch of people and have a jam session. Same kind of idea. Thank you. Yeah. I think I recovered there. <laughs> okay, we good? Thank you all for coming. Okay, Jai Shri Krishna, see you next time, hopefully.